Let us pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the day. We pray that you would speak to us now through the preaching of your word, the meditations of my uh, heart, and the words of my mouth be always pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to admit something to you. Um, Fear has been a constant struggle for me in my life. The world seems to be full of danger, and living life is risky. I will find every way to avoid getting hurt or or getting in trouble of any kind. It took me a long time to get up the nerve to ride a roller coaster for the very first time. Many years. I pretty much stayed out of drugs and alcohol during high school. I didn't date through high school. And my brushes with the law have only involved about three traffic violations over my 29 years of driving. I don't mean to brag. Thank you, Cindy. I like to play it safe. I like to be cautious. So when I stepped out in faith some 20 years ago and moved here to Jackson, Tennessee, based on some dreams the Lord gave me, I had no idea that God would scare the fear out of me all at one time. The decision had been made that our little church would be and get itself involved in foreign missions. And that was going to begin with mission trips to Ethiopia. And the decision was also made that I would accompany my pastor and our resident missionary to go scout out the land of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, in order to begin all of this mission work. Now, you need to understand that this directive, well, that's exactly what it was. It was a directive. This directive was all of my fears rolled in. To one. <laughs> the idea of getting on an airplane. I hate flying on airplanes. I always have. The idea of going to a foreign land it was terrifying to me. Do they have electricity? Sometimes. Indoor plumbing? Eh, not really. Can I eat the food? Well, it'll most definitely make you sick, but you better eat it. Sick? Are there hospitals? Are there doctors? Are there medicines? Oh my goodness. Well, as you can see, none of this was helping my fear. For as a person who is as cautious as I am, this was a death sentence. I went on that trip kicking and screaming. And it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. The thing is, I, would have done, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have taken one fear at a time, maybe a week in El Paso, where I could still be in the U.S. and just hear a foreign language spoken around me. Or maybe a weekend going camping in the woods to get used to not having electricity or plumbing. You know, just a little bit at a time. That's how I'd do it. I'd minimize all the risk and danger as much as possible. But that's not how God does it. 
He usually has something different in mind, and he's not afraid to subject his people to danger in order to accomplish his will. It is rarely how we would do it, isn't it? But God does things that don't make sense to us at the time, and it's often dangerous and uncomfortable, but it is usually for our good. If you listen to theologians talk, you'll sometimes hear them talk about God's economy. Now, they don't mean what we often mean when we say God's economy. We usually think of money because that's what we think of when we hear the word economy, don't we? But when applied to God, they usually mean God's administration of his creation, his providence, particularly his administration of his plan of salvation. Now, we've been in Romans chapter 9 and 10 recently, and today's text brings us to the end of his discussion of God's economy as it pertains to the Jewish people. In chapter 11, St. Paul makes the point that the Israelites' unbelief opened salvation to all human beings, regardless of nationality, gender, or social status. He uses this analogy of the cultivated olive tree. It's not in our, our, our passage today, but before uh, our passage, he talks about this olive tree. And the olive tree is Israel. While some of the branches have been cut off because some of the Israelites had rejected Jesus as Messiah, branches from wild olive trees have been grafted in. Those branches are all the non-Jewish believers. He wants the Gentile Christians in the Roman church to understand that they have been grafted in to Israel. So there's really no reason for them to be proud of their faith. And he also wants the Jewish believers to understand that God has not forsaken Israel. On the contrary, the unbelieving Israelites can also be grafted back in to the cultivated olive tree. So there's no reason for them to despair nor is there any reason for them to, be, to boast. So our text tonight come, continues this theme and sums up God's economy, which is, ultimate, which is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises he made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. To Paul's audience then, and to us now, it seems like a strange way of doing things. It's not how we would do it. So let's begin by looking at verse 25, the first part of verse 25. You can follow along there in your bulletin if you have that. Paul says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And we'll stop right there. The first thing that we learn here is that God's economy is a mystery. God's economy is a mystery. One of my favorite board games as a child was the game Clue. You remember Clue? Someone has been killed, and it's up to us to figure out who done it, right? And in what room of the mansion, and with what weapon. But the mystery is always revealed, isn't it, at the end of the game. Even if nobody solves it, you open that little package, you see all the cards that give you all the answers. The mystery is revealed. And we often think about mysteries as either unsolvable or unknowable. But back in Romans chapter 1, St. Paul declared that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The mystery has always been 
How in the world will God accomplish what he promised Israel? That's been the mystery. But the mystery has now been revealed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When St. Paul says that it's a mystery, he isn't saying that God keeps us in the dark. He's just saying that God is doing something we don't fully understand. It has been revealed. And this revelation is something that he wants us to be aware of. The specific mystery that he's talking about is how God can maintain his faithfulness to Israel while also including the Gentiles. Look at the rest of verse 25. He goes on to say, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So the next thing that we see here is that God's economy includes the Gentiles. It always has. His promise to Abraham is that through Abraham and his seed, all the nations would be blessed. Now, this is not how I would have done it. I would have kept the Israelites from rejecting Jesus as Messiah. That way, no branches would have been cut off of the tree. And then I'd use those branches to preach the gospel to all the Gentiles so that they all could be grafted into the tree, right? That way, we'd have a full tree and no one gets hurt. But that's not how God did it. He let a partial hardening come upon Israel for the sake of the Gentiles. That's what Paul is telling us here. And this is the mystery. Back in chapter 9, St. Paul used the example of Pharaoh, if you remember that. God had hardened his heart so that God could show his power to the Israelites and the Egyptians alike. Hardening here needs to be understood in light of Romans chapter 1. Remember that it was the obstinance of human beings that prevented them from giving thanks and glorifying God. Paul tells us back in chapter 1 that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So God's part in this hardening is simply to give them up to their own desires for sin. So the same salvation offered to Gentiles here has always been open to everyone, especially to the Israelites. But God has allowed this for the sake of the Gentiles. That is St. Paul's whole ministry. He started out preaching the gospel to the Israelites, but he encountered the hardness of their hearts. And instead, God appointed him as an apostle to the Gentiles, which is why he's writing to the Roman church and wants to take, it, the, take, take the gospel to Spain. Again, that's not how I would have done it. But in the next couple of verses, what we see is God's economy includes all of Israel. Look at chapter 20, or verse 26. And then this way, Paul says, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Wait a minute. I thought there would be some Jewish branches that were cut off. Will all those branches be grafted back in? 
Now, this is a highly debated verse. But it says right here that all Israel will be saved. Now, some say that this means that there's a separate way for Israel to be saved. That faith in Jesus as Messiah is not necessary for the Jewish people. Others say that every Israelite will eventually have faith in Jesus. But what we need to keep in mind is that Paul has said, every, what we need to keep in mind is what Paul has said before all of this. Remember the image of the olive tree. Its trunk and its roots remain the same olive tree no matter how many of its branches get cut off. The fact that Gentiles are grafted into this tree, along with all the believing Israelites, Israelites is what we must remember. That tree is all of Israel. It is an entirely different tree made up of mostly Gentiles with a few Jews grafted in. It's the same original tree. That's what Paul wants us to understand and see. So when Paul says that all of Israel will be saved, he's maintaining all he has said about the gospel and uh, that, is the, that it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile alike. The significance, of course, is that it is a tree from which wickedness has been banished because the sins of its branches have been taken away by the deliverer, that is, the Messiah or Jesus Christ. And Paul quotes Isaiah 59, 20 through 21, as if to demonstrate that this has always been the case. It's always been God's economy. Let's skip down to verse 30. Verse 30, Paul says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that they, by mer the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So finally, we see here that God's economy is to have mercy on all. There's no partiality with God. St. Paul is saying that Gentiles, were that Gentiles were consigned to disobedience, but have received God's mercy. In the same way, the unbelieving Israelites are consigned to disobedience, or a partial hardening, as Paul puts it, so that they may receive the same mercy the Gentiles have received. And this is the whole point of God's economy. He says over and over again in the Old Testament that he desires mercy rather than sacrifice. The law was never the end goal. It was always a means for him to show mercy. Now, this is not how I would have done it. The narrative of the entire Old Testament is one heartbreaking story of how God loved his people who constantly rejected him. The result was danger, it was famine, it was plagues, it was death, war, slavery, violence, floods, conquest, oppression, dismemberment, betrayal, adultery, and the list goes on and on and on. This weekend, a friend of mine and his wife lost their infant in the womb at 39 weeks. It was a really difficult news to get. 
Janie and I also lost a child at 17 weeks. Um, So it really hit home for us. While they were in the delivery room, I just texted them that we're praying for them and that we love them. And I want to read to you his response to me. He said, we mourn, but are rejoicing that our hope is a reality. He texted me that as he's losing his child, as his wife is waiting to deliver their stillborn child. And I remember thinking something very similar. Now I'm looking out among all of you, and I know that you have your own stories filled with your own sorrows and trials and tribulations. That's not how I would have done it. I would have tried to figure out a way that we could get to rejoicing in the Lord and loving Jesus without the slightest bit of suffering. But that's not how God does it. God's economy doesn't make sense to us. It is a mystery. And just as the faithlessness of Israel led to the tragedies of a divided kingdom and violent and wicked kings and eventually into exile into Babylon, we too are riddled with tragedy. And we suffer these things even, even when we are faithful. But if we take the gospel seriously, if we endure with faith, we say with St. Paul, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid is this word inscrutable there? I don't know how often you use that in your vocabulary. I had to look it up. It just means impossible to understand. Now, I wish I could stand here today and tell you how it all makes sense. But all I can tell you today is that it was no different from Jesus in his darkest hour when he asked his father for another way. And in the end, he endured the cross on our behalf. And as sure as he is now seated in glory at the right hand of the Father, we will understand it all better by and by, as the hymn says. And this is exactly why St. Paul ends chapter 11 with these words. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And ever. You see, Christ endured all things and all suffering for the joy that was set before him. So, whatever you're going through, whatever you are enduring, it probably doesn't make much sense. It didn't make sense for me to travel to Ethiopia, but I have faced so many fears since with a confidence and courage that I never would have had if I hadn't done that. It doesn't make sense that our friends had to lose their baby this weekend. But they still can rejoice. That's not how I would have done it. 
But when I think of all that Christ endured for us in his life, and especially in his death, when I think of his resurrection and his glorification, his ascension and seating at the right hand of the Father, when I realize that his mercy has resulted in securing my own resurrection and glorification, I know that there's no way that I could have come up with anything better. Even if that means that danger still lies ahead. That's not the way that I would have done it, and I'm glad. It doesn't always make it easier, but we still can rejoice. Heavenly Father, we don't understand all of your ways. We don't understand why you've worked your plan of salvation out the way that you have with the Israelites, with the Gentiles, but here we are as beneficiaries of every bit of it. Lord, when we try to understand our own circumstances and make sense of our own sufferings, Lord, will you bring us to our knees as you did St. Paul, who is able to end this chapter, this whole section, with a doxology, a praise, and a glorification of you and what you have done for us. And may the gospel of Jesus Christ so permeate us, Lord, that even in our darkest hours, even when we wish this cup to pass from us, Lord, we could still find the joy of the Lord because what, have you, what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.